How could it be worthy that you'd find a way to redeem this hardened clay, twisted and broken? Oh, Father above, the wonder that you love a heart like mine. Those are thoughts on the heart of all of us. Relating to the question of the morning, can people change? I wonder if you feel as frustrated as I do about a lack of progress in our Christian faith. The theme of the sermons this year have been the next step in our spiritual journey. I wonder how many of us have taken any new steps. I wonder if you join me in feeling absolutely frustrated that we fall into reoccurring failures and mistakes, even after countless promises, even to the point where it's almost embarrassing to come back to God and ask for forgiveness. And in our honest moments, we wonder, God, if you haven't already, you should have given up on me because I just don't think I'm ever going to be different. And, and we sort of live in a state then of partial guilt, frustration, and then wanting to hang it up anyway. And then we come back to worship and we get re-challenged and it's kind of an endless cycle. And I think that it's time we get some good theology to help us break that cycle. Because you see, very specifically, people can change. More specifically, we can change and we can break behavior patterns that hold us in bondage. Our text today deals with a man Jesus changed. He goes by that interesting name, Onesimus. Before becoming a Christian, he was a runaway slave. He had no purpose, no future. And yet history records that this guy was so transformed, he became a leader in the early church. I want to study his story because I want us each to find the reassurance today that Jesus isn't frustrated with us, even though we are frustrated with ourselves. He never gives up on us, no matter how frequent our failures. And that truth should encourage us and remind us it's never too late to change. So the first truth that probably is my greatest joy in preaching over and over again is this, that faith in Jesus empowers people to change, to change for the better. Now, actually, it's a no-brainer, if you think about it, to claim people change. People change by going to therapists, by watching television, by becoming educated. People are being changed by the oppressive forces of the ghetto and poverty, if you live there. People are being changed by the revolution taking place in communication. I can't talk with my children now, really, who are into computers and into that whole new world because it's a different language and I haven't quite arrived there. They're being changed. The issue is not whether our people can change, it's how we change and how can we change for the better. And in our text, Paul describes the character change in his friend Onesimus. I appeal to you for my child, interesting title, Onesimus. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. A runaway slave becoming a leader in the early church represented a radical character change. Another note here, welcoming a runaway slave back as a brother rather than as a piece of property represented a profound change in his owner Philemon. So when we talk about change, we're talking about character. And what is character? The best definition I found is character is what we do when no one's looking. And Jesus impacts our character, what we do when no one's watching. He, gives, he helps us by giving us strength to withstand that ever-present pressure to compromise our integrity. 
He gives the ability for us to, to delay gratification, something our society can't do very well, to stay within the boundaries of divine law, to even believe a law exists, and if those laws are broken, it will have repercussions because our society has written off the fact that divine law exists. And then Jesus puts an interest in our neighbor ahead of our own, and that's revolutionary in a society where me is the outstanding pronoun. It was his new character that led Onesimus to change directions and return to Philemon. He didn't have to. It's interesting if you look at the meaning of the name Onesimus. It simply means useful. Meeting Jesus transformed this guy into a person very useful to God, and that's really a parable of what he wants to do for you and me today. We were created to be useful for God, and that happens through faith in Jesus. This change in character, the New Testament calls that interesting title, being born again. And that phrase is being battered and adulterated by the media all over the place. But born again is still a very good term because it's biblical. I'm reading a book called Believers in Business, which I recommend to you who are in the business world. It's a, a very secular sociologist from Yale did a study, and she went in with the agenda that Christianity really does not impact how Christians in business live. So she interviewed throughout the nation hundreds of CEOs who were evangelical Christians of large companies. And her research surprised her because she really did use, uh, with great integrity, the sociological tools you need to do this research. And she concluded that a person's Christian faith does make a measurable difference in how CEOs approach their careers, how they treat their employees, their attitude toward profit, their attitude toward the environment, toward questionable business practices, their attitudes to their families. I'm not sure this lady became a Christian because of it, but she did say that our faith impacts our life. And Onesimus illustrates the truth that Jesus empowers people to change for the better. Now, that part of the message probably isn't very revolutionary or new. That's what we preach. But here's where we run into the problem. We really understand if we become a Christian, we should be changing for the better. And we should see growth. Our problem is that we don't, for the most part. I was raised, as I've told you many times, in a very conservative church. And the, the basic theology was you come down the aisle, accept Christ, you're born again, all of a sudden everything's brand new. You're a new person. The problem was I wasn't and nobody else is instantly fixed and suddenly new and perfect. And there's really only two kinds of people, those who are honest enough to say it and those who live a life of hypocrisy. When we are, quote, saved, we are simply, if we were to die that day, we're justified by faith and we go to heaven. But we're not saints and we're not perfect. That's a lifetime journey, and that's the part where we get fouled up. So the second truth here is that although salvation is instantaneous, becoming like Jesus is a lifelong journey. And we should expect it to be, and we've been loaded by bad theology with the expectation that if we're not perfect, we're somehow not in love with Jesus, that God is disappointed, and so we live with this cycle of guilt and um, frustration, discouragement, and despair. The truth is, Jesus brings change to, a to our character, but it's a journey with many, many detours. That shouldn't frustrate or discourage us, but the problem with, is that we live in a culture where we want the instant fix. 
Everything has to be instant today. And we even want to be instant Christians. Nobody learns golf in a week. Nobody learns anything worth learning in a week, but somehow we put this trip on ourselves that we ought to be perfect as Christians the day we meet Jesus or in a month or in a year. I say nonsense. I haven't met anybody yet that's like that. I often think it would be so much easier if just Jesus would have uh, given us an instant fix of character, planned it that way, because I'm a type A and I like closure and I, I just like it all fixed once I met him. It just doesn't work that way. Now, we don't know how long Onesimus was gone from Philemon or how long Paul nurtured this new Christian, but we know in those days it took months for letters to get back and forth. We do know it took time. The text says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Love the, that verb became. Growth in Christ takes time. We become. We're not there yet instantly. Christianity is vulnerable to attack from critics because our critics out there don't understand that believers aren't perfect. And I'm not sure we do either. But we fall off the wagon. We constantly revert to our old nature. We sin. We need continual forgiveness and restoration. Paul's testimony is the testimony of any honest Christian. The good I want to do, I don't. And the evil I don't want to do, I do. God help me. That's our testimony. It's also our message to our critics and to ourselves. If you think Christians are hypocrites, you're right. And if you think we shouldn't be, you've been misinformed. The only people who don't belong here today are those who think they do belong to those who have made it. Do you know the only people Jesus ever beat up on were the Pharisees who thought they were perfect? Those are the only ones he ever beat up. It seems that Jesus, the, the worse sinner you were, the happier you became when you met Jesus. Just go through the lineup in the New Testament. You have people with adultery, thieves. He was accused of being partying with, with, with sinners. I don't think we've ever really understood Jesus. But the ones he was most uptight on, about and avoided were the uptight, quote, Christians of his time who weren't Christians. They were legalists. He's at home with sinners. That's why he's at home with us. And if we once can understand that, I think we begin to understand grace. This is our message, folks. Um, be patient. God isn't finished with us yet. I love that. Change is a process. And that's why week after week, as pastors, we preach a lot of grace and a lot of forgiveness. Personally, I need all the grace I can get. And I don't need it one week or one month. I need it all the time. Grace is an ongoing gift. That's why we have communion until Jesus comes. Jesus never intended you to get to a place where you don't need forgiveness anymore. I read this sign that we ought to have hanging all over the place. Please be patient. Renovation in progress to produce something new and wonderful. This is the good news of Christianity. It's what we're becoming. What I want us to hear today then is, what does God expect? If we can't be perfect, we have a standard of Jesus, and it's going to take us a lifetime to get there. What does God expect from us, if not perfection? I want to say he expects desire. He wants us to desire to be free from our bondage to sin. He wants us to be miserable when we make commitments Sunday and break them by Monday. It's the misery that indicates we belong to him and love him and that the Holy Spirit is in us. We, we just don't, we're not at home in the mud anymore. 
once we know Jesus. The focal issue is desire, not achievement. And when we get that into our head, we're going to find more peace in our Christian life. But then again, here's the conviction. I wonder how many of us really desire to be like Jesus. I wonder how many of us desire to change. Talking with a few people after last night, some of us aren't too troubled by our guilt. We know that that is forgivable. We're troubled by the fact we just basically like who we are. We don't want to change. The one unforgivable sin is to boldly say to God, you know, I sort of like who I am. And if you don't like it, tough. I'm going to let you have this much, but I, this is just who I am, and this is how I'm going to die, and you just bug out of my life. That's sin. That's what God can't handle. That's the unbroken spirit. You see, we say we want to change, but not really. Not enough to give up sinning. Not enough to give up our seat on the throne and saying, I'm still in control. Jesus warned. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. I don't think there's very many people who don't want to be better people. But it's the few who will send, surrender the sovereignty of their will to Jesus and said, you take over. I want to change. You see, I think most of us struggle with two love affairs. On the one hand, we love Jesus, and on the other hand, we still love our old life. We're committed to the Christian life, but we like playing around with sin. We don't want to change. We just want to keep a foot in both worlds. And depending on which day, how we're feeling, the battle will go either way. I'm amazed at I can preach a sermon five times. And at 1 o'clock Sunday, I'm saying, God, that's it for me the rest of my life. And come Monday, I fall on my face. Yeah, God will forgive it, but the sin is if I really enjoy falling on my face and if I'm kidding God on Sunday. But if I'm really sorry and that Monday is not who I am or who I want to be, that's forgivable. Do you see the difference? I, I think that one of the hopes of having Bill, I didn't use this in the other sermons, but Bill Pickthorn is a gift to me because he indicates that after we walk with Jesus for a long time, even if we don't know it, we get increasingly like him. So Bill, I want you to know you give me hope that it's a journey and you just don't even know that it's happening. But as you walk with the Lord, you gradually get like him. I'm happy that I can hold that out in front of us after all the detours and all the frustrations. Doesn't mean he still doesn't sin. I bet if I could get into his life, he still has a few and he will till Jesus comes. It's no accident in our text, Onesimus is delivered from slavery. That's a parable, you see, of how sin enslaves us. Peter tells us a person is a slave to whatever has mastered him. We can be mastered by wrong desires, by money, by lust, by pride, by a hunger for power, you name it. Rebellion against God's authority, though, saying, I'm not going to change, this is who I am, that isn't freedom, that's slavery. And then... The good news is Jesus is here this morning saying again to us who are so stubborn, if the Son will make you free, you will be free indeed. So the bottom line, every Christian is on a journey to Christ-likeness. But no one has arrived yet. 
But the good news is that no matter where we are on our journey, how discouraged, how guilt-ridden, how we might have messed up beyond belief, Jesus is waiting to empower us to forget the past and start today with a new step on our journey. This is so difficult for some of us, depending on what traditions we've come from, to understand. You see, we have a choice regarding this offer of God's grace in the face of our failures. We can accept it knowing we need it, or we can trample God's grace, spurn it, close our hearts to it, cut ourselves off from its life-transforming power. We can say, I've got to do this myself. I can't just keep using Christ's grace. I've got to shape up. Or we can say, I don't want to change and I don't need grace. I'm good enough and if God can't accept me tough, it's those attitudes that get people lost in hell. It's when we honestly confess our broken track records, bring to God the ugliness of our sin, that's when we discover the miracle of God's amazing grace. Because rather than punish us, this is what the Bible says God does with our sin over and over again once we turn it to Him. God forgets it, I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thank God He forgets what I've done. Then God removes it. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Our sins, once confessed, no matter how ugly, will never be brought up again. God takes away the stain. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. We have such guilt of things we can't undo, but God erases it, no matter how ugly. And then God buries our sins. He will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Our frustration with repeated failure helps us understand, folks, our need for grace. It means we, it forces us to admit our need for a savior, and that is our righteousness, not our moral perfection. We can't become the persons we want to be in our own strength. That's our righteousness, to understand that and receive it by faith rather than effort. And the New Testament is full of stories about Jesus who changed messed up people. Peter denied Jesus, and Jesus came back and forgave him, and he had a new name, Peter the Rock, of all the paradoxes, the oxymorons, Peter the Rock. And then Mary Magdalene, before meeting Christ, sold her body and then became a loyal follower. Zacchaeus, a thief, a traitor of his own countrymen, met Jesus and was changed to the point of making restitution to everyone he had ever cheated. The process of character change is slow. It's frustrating, but real. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist, writes, Christianity has produced on this earth a new creature who lives in new ways to which the natural man can no more fly or attain than a crawling thing can fly. A creature whose way of life is so radically different from what was left behind that we can describe it by no other term than rebirth. I want you to know as believers today, no matter where you are on your journey or how guilt-ridden you are, Jesus will never, never, never give up on you. Every time we reject the habits of the crowd, practice the disciplines of the faith, say, I want to change even though this is where I fouled up, we become a little more alive, a little more free, a little more like Jesus. So I want to close with a familiar challenge that you've been hearing since September at least and maybe longer than that. The way to change and to respond to grace is through spiritual discipline. If you have a desire to change, that's your righteousness. How do you know if you have it? If you're willing to practice these disciplines, folks, and there's three of them, you've heard them before. 
Every day you should be in Scripture. It's Monday when I'm in Scripture that I get convicted that I've fallen off the wagon since Sunday. Otherwise, there's so many truths out there that would reinforce whatever behavior I do, I could feel pretty good about myself. But the Bible's a probe and it keeps me in the light of God's truth. And without it, every day, it's like going without food and without air, you can't make it. Secondly, you need other Christians. How many times have I suggested a covenant group? I, I think the best thing that's happened to me in months was a good friend of mine told me, he said, Gerber, after 22 years, I agree with you, I need a covenant group. And I wanted to say, yes, he finally got it. You see, Philemon and Onesimus did not change alone. Who helped them? Paul the Apostle. He came alongside of them. God needs us to need each other, to hold us accountable. If you're living the Christian life seeking to change without accountability, you will not make it. I don't know anybody who does. And then finally, prayer. You heard about our National Day of Prayer, our weekend of prayer. Folks, prayer is the reality and perhaps the ultimate heartbeat of the power of change. I talk to Jesus more intimately than I talk with any of you. When the devil throws his darts of discouragement and guilt, when I'm in the mire of thinking I can never pull myself out of that, the Lord reaches down in prayer and washes me off. I find power, I find wisdom. We need to learn how to pray daily as you would any other kind of discipline. Small groups, prayer, and the scriptures. Practice them. I'll keep telling you that as long as I'm in this pulpit. And when you practice those together, we will continue on our spiritual journey and we will make progress. There is hope to become like Jesus until one day we'll be totally like him when we stand at his feet.